Welcome to the Innovation Meets Leadership Podcast. Real inspiration for real innovators. If you're looking for innovation and leadership transformation, your journey starts now. Welcome to the Innovation Meets Leadership Podcast. I'm your host, Natalie Bourne. I would love if you would help us spread the word by leaving a review wherever you listen to podcasts. I'd also like to welcome Spain to the list of the 50 plus countries listening from around the world. Well, my guest today is Brian Clayton. Brian is the CEO and co-founder of GreenPal. It's a mobile app that connects homeowners to local lawn care professionals. GreenPal has been called the Uber for lawn care by Entrepreneur Magazine and has over 300,000 active users completing thousands of transactions per day, doing over 20 million a year in sales. Welcome to the podcast, Brian. Natalie, thanks for having me on. It's great to be here. So I would love to talk a little bit about your founding story. I think that backstories are so great when we're talking to especially this group of people, because most of the people listening to this podcast are either on their journey entrepreneurial-wise or they want to start that journey. So I would love to just hear a little bit of your backstory. Yeah, I appreciate that because I think starting a business is one of the best things you can do with your life. It's the best, one of the best things that can cause you to live an interesting life. It certainly has been for me. I started in entrepreneurship 25 years ago when my father made me go mow the neighbor's yard one day. He interrupted me playing Nintendo. He said, get off your butt. I'm tired of watching you play Nintendo. I got a gig for you. You're going to go cut the neighbor's grass. And he made me go mow the neighbor's yard. I wasn't living in a democratic household. And uh, luckily that happened because after that, I was hooked. I was hooked on entrepreneurship. I made like 20 bucks. And for an hour's work, and I thought, this is amazing. I'm mm -hmm. just going to do this. And so I passed out a bunch of flyers all over the neighborhood that first summer, got a handful of customers, and I stuck with that little lawn mowing business all through high school. And then when I put myself through college mowing grass, and when I graduated college, I made a little business plan and decided, you know, this is going to be my lane in life. Owning a business is the thing that, that I'm just going to double down on. And over a 15-year period of time, built up one of the larger landscaping companies in the southeastern United States. Ended up growing that business to over 150 employees, got it over 10 million a year in revenue. And then in 2013, the business was acquired by a national company. And so just growing that company from just me and a push mower to me and a like 90 trucks going out every day, I learned a lot about business, how to get a business going. And then after I sold that company, I took some time off and got bored really quick and started to understand about myself that mm -hmm. I'm wired to want to be in the game. I need to be a part of another project. So what am I going to do now? And I started seeing what Airbnb and Uber were doing for other types of real world transactions. And I thought somebody is going to build the app that is yeah. the Uber for lawn care services. It might as well be me. I mean, how hard could it be? And uh, it was kind of naivete as an asset. I didn't know what I didn't know, <laughs> but I got in the game. And uh, recruited two co-founders, and we started working on on this app that sh that works like Uber, but for lawn mowing. We called it GreenPal, and now GreenPal is a ten-year overnight success. Been at this thing for a little over a decade. Now we have three hundred thousand people using the app to get their lawn mowed, and and we're still growing 40, 50 percent year over year. So it's been a hell wow. of a journey. But twenty-three years, one industry. I've seen it from every angle you can see it from. Well, I want to talk more about that because you know. 
some of the folks that listen to this have a background in tech. And so they're laughing with you when you said, oh, you know, how hard can it be? I would love to hear a little bit more about what what did you learn through that journey as you went from being a business owner to being kind of like this tech business owner? Yeah, it's a great question. It's one that I didn't know uh, until I was confronted with it. You know, in reality is, is that it's a lot harder than it looks for a couple of reasons. One, there's a big difference between running a traditional business, like it could be a construction company, could be a restaurant, hair salon, lawn mowing business, like what I had, versus inventing a new product that does not exist in the world. Those are really two different things. And they're two different journeys. They're two different sets of skills. They're two different sets of challenges. Both are hard. Yeah. But after I had built a big landscaping company and sold it, I thought, here I am, I, you know, my my chest is all puffed out. I thought I knew knew everything there was to know about about business, and I was quickly confronted that I didn't know the first thing about inventing a new product from scratch. And that's really what we were doing with building GreenPal. There was no app where you could push a button and summon a gardener to come take care of this chore for you. And so we had to kind of build that out from scratch, and that's a lot harder than you think. And the only thing that kind of got us through it was. Just starting very, very, very small, getting a handful of customers, listening to them, and then using that feedback to get through like one level to the next. There was a book we were reading at the time called The Lean Startup by Eric Reese. It's a great book about how to build a product, a tech product from scratch, and how to use feedback from users to kind of forge your way through the unknown, which is what we were doing. And, uh, you know, I thought it would be a three-year thing, ended up being you know, a 10 year thing just to get to the starting line. So it takes a lot longer than you think. And it's a lot harder than people make it look. Well, it's, it's interesting when I, when I hear you talk about this journey, because, you know, most people wouldn't intrinsically think let's put our customer at the center. I mean, that is how most software people are hopefully building their products. But I love that you got your hands on some materials and resources and you said, we're going to start getting feedback. The other thing that's really hard and I think is different in the tech world, you're wired to go get that feedback. Sometimes in other parts of of business, we may not be so wired to get that feedback. And you can kind of see that from some of these reality shows, right? Where they go into restaurants to tell them they're not doing a good job and they lose it. Right. Yeah, that's a very, very good point. It sounds like obvious advice. It sounds like, oh yeah, listen to your customers. Of course. But the reality is most founders, most entrepreneurs are resistant to that feedback because it's painful. It's usually not what you want to hear. It's usually telling you everywhere you suck. And the marketplace is a relentless purveyor of this river of feedback. If you use it to your advantage, it can help you get to the next level. If you kind of turn a deaf ear to it, it can cause you to not go anywhere. And I always tell this to new founders, when you're starting a new tech product, your cell number needs to be on the homepage. Your cell number needs to be on the emails. The email, when the system sends an email, it needs to come back to your email inbox. The live chat needs to hit you up on your mobile because you need that, that feedback. You need that feedback to be unvarnished and you need to remove all the friction between people telling you everything they want to tell you. And that's the only way you kind of know what to focus your limited resources on. Mm -hmm. That's the only way you know what to focus the team on is, hey, we have 20 customers and all of them are telling us these three things that we need to fix. And if you don't do that, then you're kind of just operating on your own assumptions. And a lot of times you're, you're going to end up being wrong. 
Well, you know, it's interesting when I hear you talk about this because, you know, what you're you're also saying is that in the early stages, you need to be able to to be a part of the conversation and not be so removed from the conversation that you don't know what's happening. That's right. And it's those it's those quick and scrappy moves that actually help you to be successful in the long term because you're you're close enough to your customer to understand what's happening. Yeah, and this is so critical that as companies get bigger, they lose sight of this. And there's this weird gap that mm-hmm. develops between customer logic and company logic. Yeah. And the customer is looking at the problem from one paradigm and the company's looking at it from another paradigm. And it's almost like they're seeing two different things and it's one problem. This was so critical that like, if you read books about the early uh, days of Amazon, there's a really good book called The Everything Store. And it's, it sounds silly, but Jeff Bezos in the early days would have a board meeting and there would be like 10 people around the big table. And then in one of the chairs, there'd be this big, huge teddy bear. And the big teddy bear was this, the voice of the customer. And so, and so this is so like hard to do that even like Amazon had to do it in the early days, maybe they still do where they had to put a big teddy bear in a chair. (laughs) So you had this physical manifestation of the voice of the customer and you don't forget it because it's a big goofy teddy bear at the board meeting. Like, okay, so what does the customer think? And then like some, maybe somebody speaks for the customer. I don't know. But like, mm-hmm. it's hard to do. It's a lot harder than it sounds. Yeah. You know, speaking of hard things, you made a hard decision as well not to go after that venture capital initially. What would you say were the pros and cons to doing that? Yeah. You know, for me, it was a personal, I guess, a personal choice. I didn't want to build a business that investors loved. I wanted to build a business that customers loved. And a lot yeah. of times it's hard to do both. Because a lot of times investors are going to want you to build something that can move super quick. And a lot of times it's hard to bring customers on that journey with you. And so that was one reason. Another reason is we're out of Nashville, Tennessee. There's not a whole lot of venture capital in Nashville, Tennessee. So that was kind of helpful to us. And and another reason was I've got a little litmus test that I say for advice that I give to, to founders. When you're wanting to raise money, let's say you could mortgage your mother's home and get $100,000. And you know you could spend that $100,000 and turn it into three or four or $500,000. But if you don't, your mother loses her home. Until you're ready, until you feel that good about it, don't go out and raise capital. Like, wow. Until you feel that strongly about it. Like, I, I have figured it all. I have it totally de-risked. And I know that I just need like a half million dollars or a million dollars to put in the, in the top of this thing. And I can turn it into five or 10 million. Until you feel that good about it, like mom is going to be on the street then don't do it. Because if you can't deliver, then you're going to lose your business. And you're going to end up spending five years of your life that you wasted on, on something that didn't come to fruition because you wasted that capital. It's kind yeah. of like putting rocket fuel. If you're not ready, it's kind of like putting rocket fuel in a Toyota Camry. It's just not going to end well. Well, and rocket fuel is expensive too. <laughs> so, yeah. Rocket fuel comes out of know. cost. Yeah. That's so right. you better be ready for the, the rocket fuel to be used properly. And, you know, I think about this because in my consulting practice, I'm speaking to and helping a lot of entrepreneurs who are just kind of getting their start. And I think what you're saying, although it may sound simple, is really brilliant because where you pull the lever, when you pull the lever, all of those things really matter. And so, so often people pull the lever at the wrong time and then it fails. That's and right. And, you know, I think the fact that the way that you're thinking through that and the way you were thinking through it for your own business, I think it forced you to also to to really be ready when that time was right to say, okay, let's pull 
the lever so that we can get to where we need to go. And most people can't really feel that out. And some of that is maybe being even a little too impatient. Yeah. And I also, I think a lot of times it can be a crutch. A lot of times new founders can say, well, I can't get capital. Therefore, I can't get started. Therefore, that's the reason, excuse why I don't need to do this. And that's really a limiting belief. There's so many things you could do with no capital. You could create a prototype. You could get 20 people to, tr- to use your prototype. You could create a landing page for your offering and see how many people will put a credit card down for the offering and, and like de-risk it more and more and more and more to where you could attract that capital. So that's a mistake I see a lot of new founders make. It's like, I can't raise the million or $5 million, therefore I can't do this thing. And in reality, you can do a lot of things uh, nights and weekends while still working our full-time job. And so that's something I see a lot of. And the other thing is funding a business off of its own revenues forces you to stay focused on the customer because it's like, we made a thousand dollars last month. Like this was us in year one. We made a thousand dollars. There's three guys working on this thing a hundred hours a week. And collectively we pulled down $1,000 last month. We have to get that to $10,000 a month or else we're not going to be around in 12 months. And so that's effect that crystallizes your thinking very clearly on reaching out to customers, figuring out where they're happy, the customers that quit using the product, figuring out what you did to upset them. Like it makes you like, it's almost like a course correcting thing, funding the business off of its own revenues. Whereas if we had raised a, a half million or a million dollar seed round, it's not that big a deal. Maybe we should go hire somebody to deal with that. You know, right? like it, it can cause you to make sloppy decisions. That's really powerful. So I wonder, like, as we kind of turn our attention to, I want to focus a little bit on some advice that you would give to other entrepreneurs. I mean, I think that what you're saying here resonates so much because you've been through the fire, right? And so as you look back on that, what would you say were like the three or four things that you would say, hey, as an entrepreneur, I couldn't have made it if I didn't read this book or, you know, take this course or do this thing. What would you say three or four of those things were? Yeah, I I like the tactical aspect of that question. I think as a founder, you're doing three things at once at all times. So you're working in the business. You're just trying to hold it together. You're working on the business. You're trying to develop some kinds of systems, processes, routines. And then the third thing is you're working on yourself. You're reading books. You're listening to podcasts. You're watching stuff like this on YouTube. You're listening to audiobooks. You are trying to level up and the business is going to cause you to level up. And a lot of times the journey of a founder is, is like, you're like moving around block and tackling to whatever like stage of the game you're in. And you're trying to get the skills you got to get to get to that, to the next level. And the reality is, is there's not enough hours in the week, every hour in the car, you need to be listening to something that's going to help you get the skills you need. You know, five hours on a Sunday afternoon, you need to sit down and read the books you need to be reading. And is there like two or three books to give you the answer? No, a lot of times it's dynamic to whatever stage of the game you're in. For example, like for me, when we were building the first version of GreenPal, I started to understand really quickly that how powerful words on a screen are and how powerful copywriting is. Yeah. And, and we started doing like some testing and we would change like one or two just pieces of copy and it would increase like conversion by double digits. Mm-hmm. And so I started to understand, man, like being a good copywriter is important to this. Like there's just all this other stuff I got to learn, but also I got to be a good copywriter. And so for three months, like all I did was take online courses around copywriting, read every blog I could on copywriting, read every book I could on good copywriting. I read a book that was written in the twenties called My Life in Scientific Advertising by this guy named Claude Hopkins. It's a hundred year old book. 
But he talks about how they split test coupons and newspapers and stuff and how they wrote good copy 100 years ago. That wow. book was tremendously valuable to me in terms of becoming a good copywriter. So my point is, it's like that was three months that I took off like to 10, 20 hours a week to become a good copywriter. And I did that over and over and over again for the 20 things you got to be good at to be a good founder. And so a lot of times you're trying to shore up where you're not good so you can get like 80, 20 good at that thing to where you can then delegate it well, because it's pretty much impossible to delegate anything that you aren't decent at. And so that would be one thing I learned was that you can learn anything that you got to learn to get to the next level of the game. I love that. And I think that's something that a lot of people who are thinking about entrepreneurship need to understand is that you have to be hungry to learn, like the learning and and just picking up things that you had no clue about yesterday. And now you need to get yourself up to speed to become an expert in this area pretty quickly. And I just love that you know, I would also say if you're, if you're not hungry, don't get into entrepreneurship. It's not the right, it's not the right road for you. (laughs) Absolutely. And to not believe your own BS, it's like, well, I'm not a copywriter. I got to go hire a copywriter. No, I need to become a decent copywriter. And so I don't want to, but I have to, if I want to get to the next level. So all of that and to not believe your own BS. I love that. So I would love to know, just when you think about the different stages of your journey, just kind of give us an overview of, and this is kind of the the burning question I have, what did you learn hiring-wise? I think hiring and entrepreneurship is such an important kind of hand-in-hand piece. What have you learned over the years? Yeah, step one, it starts with me. And and what I mean by that is, is being pretty good at whatever it is I'm trying to hire the role for. So for example, like, I hired a chief of Facebook marketing about a year ago, and, and this girl has really helped us open up Facebook as a channel, whereas we, we were reliant on just a Google organic search for a long time. And now she is really, because she dedicates all of her time on just that one channel. I ran the campaigns for like four years, me personally. Yeah. So I knew kind of what I was looking for. Every single time I've ever tried to delegate anything that I didn't know anything about, it's always blowing up in my face. And so I yeah. think a lot of times bad hiring can get chalked up to you just didn't know what the hell it is that you were hiring for. And so it was really kind of your fault as the founder or the manager Mm -hmm. or the leader. I think the gold standard for this is Elon Musk. Mm -hmm. You know, whether between Tesla or SpaceX, he can go and have a conversation with, you know, the engineer of the drivetrain at Tesla at a very high level about the engineering, you know, components. And then he can like talk to the user experience design who's designing the uh, the dashboard for the mm-hmm. controls of the Tesla and anything else with respect to that car. And then he can go over to SpaceX and have a high level, like contributive conversation with a rocket scientist working on, a, on like the next Falcon 5 or whatever that's going to land uh, standing upright. You know, like all of these like crazy things, like he can move anywhere in any of those organizations and speak to what those people are doing. That's like the Holy Grail. And wherever you are and wherever Elon Musk is, you have to try to like close that gap in terms of like knowing the 80-20 of copywriting, Facebook ads, Google organic search, product design, you know, customer research, competitive analysis, basic bookkeeping, all of these things you got you to be good at. And so it starts with you. And then you can understand how to put somebody in a role where they can succeed because you can lay it out because you've done it before. That's the main mistake and the main lesson I've learned around making good hires is doing the job myself for a while and then being able to to define that role 
in such a way that I can put somebody in there to succeed. Man. So as I hear you talk, I'm like, you just went and got an MBA basically in, in all these different areas. I mean, you did a, an MBA of, of business and life, right? Of just learning all these different areas. And that's essentially what it is. And so I think that, you know, entrepreneurship is not at all for the faint of heart. Yeah. <laughs> the good news is today you can learn this stuff for free online. Like it's amazing. So YouTube true. University, you can learn 80% of everything you got to know. Yeah. And, and so that's the, that's the beauty of it. That's true. It just requires you to roll up your sleeves and get ready to learn. Where can people find you? Where can people follow you? Yeah. So anybody doesn't want to mow your own yard, just download GreenPal in the App Store or Play Store. Anybody wants to hit me up, Instagram's the best place to reach me. Brian M. Clayton, just drop me a DM there. Awesome. Brian, thank you so much for your time today. This was awesome. Well, thank you for having me on. I enjoyed it. To our listeners, thank you for joining the Innovation Meets Leadership podcast. Remember, don't just get out of the box, break the box and set it on fire. Let's go transform something. Thank you for joining us for the Innovation Meets Leadership podcast. Be sure to subscribe to our show on iTunes. Follow us on Instagram or Facebook at Innovation Meets Leadership and visit our site at innovationmeetsleadership.com for more innovation resources. Today's sponsorship is brought to you by Territory Global. We work at the intersection of experience and imagination. We help you pinpoint problems and turn them into opportunities. We make imagine happen. Some of the best organizations in the world choose us as their partner to help solve their strategy, innovation, transformation, story, and ways of working problems. Learn more at Territory.co.